This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, verses 1 through 15, and then Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be, may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts. And we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of Christ. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Beth and Dan and Eric, Dave, Joseph, Steve. It takes a lot of people to do this. And uh, I'm thankful for them. Hope you are as well. The series that we're utilizing uh, this year is um, practicing the kingdom or kingdom practices. And a kingdom practices any move, literal or metaphorical, designed to engage your heart and your mind, pointing to the wrong thing, I don't know why, point, uh, designed to engage your heart and your mind with the love of God in action, in thought, in motivation. Generosity is a kingdom practice that glorifies God and Encourages neighbor and is a move of obedience, for sure, but also is a kingdom practice. The kingdom that we cannot see 
does exist and we have access to it. One of the ways that we enjoy that access is through kingdom practices. Later this year, we'll do a series on Micah 6.8 because as we're able, when we practice justice, that's a kingdom practice. Prayer, the way that Beth just prayed for us and led us in prayer as a congregation is a kingdom practice. I don't think that's, that one's probably surprising to you. A spiritual conversation with a friend or with five or ten friends is a kingdom practice. Learning to take one day in seven for rest, for ceasing from our work, for celebration, feasting. Sabbath is a kingdom practice. Learning silence, usually for a specific reason and for a specific amount of time. Learning the slow practice of reading of Scripture, called Lectio Divina, oftentimes is a kingdom practice. These are moves of our heart, mind, and soul designed to help us sense God and his love. Because he exists, and his love exists, and yet we're in this world where sin and death and disease have not yet worn out. And so we learn to lean into the kingdom in some measure through kingdom practices. I think it's interesting to consider how many of them revolve around uh, at least one, if not two, or three, or four, or five of our senses, as in our, our physical sense of sight and smell, and hearing, and touch. I didn't know why we got palm fronds when I was a kid as much as I do now. I think I have twice as many questions as I do explanations and some churches only do Sunday, you know? They don't do, they don't do the um, full liturgical calendar, or like us, partial. We, we do some of the Sundays. But I love this because it's good to celebrate the day that Jesus rode in on a donkey on top of lots and lots of uh, garments. When it says them, plural, that's because of the garments. Why? Why did he ride in on a donkey? Because he is a humble king. And I don't know about you, but I really have to trust the Lord and allow him to expand my imagination to imagine anyone with more than, I don't know, an average amount of power in the world who's actually fully beautifully humble. What about you? Perhaps it's easy for you. But what king or politician or church leader have you ever met with more than an average amount of power who is actually humble? I remember as a kid... The, the, the dominant thing I remember from Sunday school and, and the Christian high school that I went to in middle school, when we would look at Matthew 21, it was all about the fulfillment of prophecy. And what I'm more interested in us noticing is that Jesus is humble and his kingship is humble. And humble doesn't mean less than. 
true humility, biblical humility, the kind that Jesus explains perhaps most profoundly in the Beatitudes, knows exactly who they are in relation to God. And for Jesus, this is, he is God, but in this moment, he had emptied himself of his... Um, he had emptied, I'm just going to say he had emptied himself because I don't want to open Philippians 2 and get into all of the realities of the kenosis. I want us to pay attention to Jesus' humility because it's essential. I learned this week, I'm reading a book called uh, Gentle and Lowly, which was written by a former member of the barn named Dane Ortland, who uh, I attended seminary with. He's a little bit older than me, I think. He has a lot more gray hair than me for sure. And he doesn't watch our sermon, so he's not going to be offended by that. And in the first chapter, he pointed something out that I had never caught before. If you're familiar with Matthew chapter 11, we're preaching over Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 21, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus on the donkey. But in Matthew chapter 11 is the only time Jesus refers to his heart. In all of the scriptures, the only time that Jesus describes his own heart with words is when he says, I am gentle and lowly. That's worth us noticing. That's worth us celebrating. That's worth us allowing our mind and imagination to, to, to picture him on the donkey and understand perhaps a little bit more than we have in the past that this king is entirely humble and gentle and accessible. That's what he means by lowly. That's what he is saying when Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11 as gentle and lowly. That's not all there is to notice about the triumphal entry. That's not all there is to notice about Matthew chapter 6. I, one thing that... that uh, stuck out to me as I studied this text is Jesus says, if anyone says anything to you, you should say the Lord needs them. So I'm picturing Matthew helping lead the colt and the donkey out of Jerusalem. And someone's like, Matthew, is it true you got out of the extortion business? And he says, the Lord needs them. <laughs> I don't know. Peter, how's the fishing been? The Lord needs them. People are like, how's weird. But maybe then I don't know if that's even a decent joke. But the humanness of the story is in there. That's why I put the joke into my notes. Jesus knew that it would be awkward for the disciples to borrow two working animals for his triumphal entry, but it was important both to fulfill the prophecies that Matthew recollects and to help us see, using our imagination and our mind, that he is humble. Give me a second there, Steve-O. Sorry. The humble king needed prayer. Jesus, oh, there's so much to say this holy week. But what I want you to notice, because of the way I'm choosing to preach about kingdom practices is that Jesus needed prayer. Jesus lamented a few chapters after this. He says, O oh, Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem. He knew how to lament. He knew how to be sad as a human being 
and then express that sadness, frustration, and anger. If you read Matthew 23, <laughs> most of the emotions except glad in it. He knew how to do that and to do it at God. If he needed prayer and, and lament, so do you. I shared a few weeks ago, but I'll say it again. One of my, one of my laments of the last, uh, let's say, three months is, Lord, I can't see your church. And that's hard. Remind me she's your church, not mine. And help. Hopefully you're lamenting. I was talking with a very close friend yesterday, and his counselor encouraged him to lament about something, and I tried to, you know, subtly be like, yeah, yes, please, yes, 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 you need to lament that, yes. And we talked about it. And I don't know if he's going to do it. And I'll ask him. We're going to talk on the phone again tonight. And if you're watching right now, I'm going to ask you. He needs lament. And so do you. Jesus did also. Jesus prayed for his friends also. You remember his description of uh, his prayer for Peter? So he had spent time alone praying for Peter, and then he described his prayer for Peter which makes me feel a little better when people tell me that they've prayed for me and don't tell me how they prayed for me. I'm always like, huh. But it's good. Jesus not only needed prayer for himself and lament, he needed prayer for his friends. So do you. And I know your time is limited and you have to sleep and eat and work or work at your retirement. You also need to spend some time praying for your friends. It's part of the with God life. It's part of the lovely provision of God that he not only gives us friendship and prayer, but prayer that encourages and supports and sustains our friends through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wrestled with God, and I know that is um, challenging to us because he is God, but he wrestled with God in Gethsemane. If you want to read something this week, and really marinate in it in the scriptures. That's a picture of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed three times, asked the Lord to figure it out another way. Have you ever prayed that way? Something's in front of you and it's challenging. Have you ever said, Lord, I would like it if there was another way? And many of you have never prayed that way because of how Jesus ends his prayer not my will, but yours. And we think we're doing something more spiritual. And when we believe or act more spiritually than the Bible, and especially than Jesus, friends, it's a wild adventure in missing the point. I'm going to encourage you, because Jesus needed prayer, to pray about the things in your life that trouble you, the exact same way Jesus did before Gethsemane. And your situation is not as bad as that. You will not suffer as much as Jesus suffered on the cross because you're not divine. And that divinity and sense of affection with the Father will not ever be taken away from you because of Jesus. But your suffering is something that Jesus sympathizes with and is even sorrowful towards 
And one of the provisions he's given is to pray the way that he did. So I'm encouraging you, especially because it's Holy Week, something's going on in your life and you have some sense of how the Lord is growing you up through it, the best way to begin that prayer is, God, if there's another way. Because it's so honest. That's part of Jesus' interdependently connected part of Jesus' humility is his honesty. I try to be honest with you as your pastor and hopefully friend. We're not doing a, a Maundy Thursday service this week, and here's why. I am so tired. Because my job is really hard. And the humility of Jesus is so beautiful. And I, can, I was able to easily write this sermon, finally, because of the beautiful humility of Jesus Christ. But this job is really hard. One of my mentors in St. Louis, his name is Fred Lang, and I used to try and explain away what was challenging about being a pastor. Like, it's not that hard. And he would argue with me, mostly on the basis of spirituality. Two of my closest friends, wildly successful humans, one of them is an executive vice president of a trust company, the other one is director of land acquisition and energy strategy at Microsoft. I used to argue with them and say, your jobs are really hard. And they, they literally will laugh at me. <laughs> and I've finally given up arguing with them. I said, okay, am I saying it's the hardest job in the world? Nope. But is it really hard? Yeah. And I'm tired. And that's why we're already planning really fun Holy Week. By fun, I mean uh, profound stuff for... Um, Holy Week in 2022, but this year we're not doing anything until uh, Resurrection Sunday. We are going to have an Easter egg hunt, um, I think. We are going to flower the cross. You'll get all that information in the barn blast. And the reason I'm being honest about how I'm doing is we are to learn from, then follow Jesus in the way he did life. And he's so honest and humble and authentic. He's the most honest human that has ever existed. He's the most humble in the true sense. Who am I in the world before God? And who am I not? The world has ever seen. And we get to learn from him, take his yoke upon us, because he's gentle, and that yoke will not crush us. And it is, in fact, the only thing that can give rest to our souls. Matthew 11. The humble king needed prayer. So do I, so do you. And he taught it. And here's the thing with the Lord's Prayer. I'm just going to give you the secret up front before I explain a little bit. You are to, and I am, to take each clause, each section of sentence that can be taken away and, and utilized. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Each clause, and we are to re-say it in our own words. Because Jesus said, 
pray this. Pray then like this. He didn't say, pray these words. If he had wanted to say, pray these words, he would have said, pray these words. When you don't have any other words, you don't have any creativity of your own, pray these words. But when you do have some energy, when you do have a moment, when you can get into your room and close the door, and you have six or 60 minutes, take each clause, phrase, and unpack it. My best seasons with the Lord's Prayer are when I write Our Father in a journal, and then I write all the humans I'm concerned with, and remember that He is their Father. The Lord's Prayer is so beautifully collective, reminding us that we're not alone in keeping us from our, our natural self-centeredness. Not my Father, our Father. And this is not the only way to pray. I got fascinating feedback last week on my sermon, and the feedback that included Scripture was really interesting to me. But I realized one way that I could be clearer. I'm not attempting to speak conclusively about prayer. I'm attempting to encourage you to utilize the kingdom practice of the Lord's Prayer the way that Jesus taught it. As almost every book of the Bible, literally, there are 66 of them, teaches us something about prayer. In just Genesis, we have Cain, Hagar. Hagar's the first one who calls upon the name of the Lord, I think. And her response to the angel is so beautiful. Abraham prayed, Joseph, Sarah. And we can learn from them because the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write this down after the, well, all the things that came to pass that produced Genesis. We learn about prayer in Exodus and Leviticus, and the prophets, and the Psalms, perhaps especially, because it's the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. So I'm not attempting to say everything there is to be said about prayer. But I want us to look at, and see, and understand, and then follow Jesus, literally, in the way that he taught the Lord's Prayer. That being said, this is the best way. 100%. You're like, what's the best way to pray? Utilizing the Lord's Prayer as a model and then re-praying it using our own words and expanding each clause. And look at the order of it. God is so merciful and gracious to us. He not only prayed and let us see him praying, Jesus, he also taught us an order that keeps us from our natural selfishness. We would start with, give us this day our daily bread, right? Other kinds of uh, harsh religion would just nix that. Jesus includes that, but he puts it in the middle. We start with collective, reminding us we're not alone. Father, who is in heaven, who sees us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is the most demanding part of the Lord's Prayer. It's actually a command. We are commanding him to come back and to make our world 
our kingdoms more and more and more like his. Jesus is so kind in the way that he teaches prayer that our souls cannot help but be settled by the only one who can speak peace to them. Our Father, who is in heaven. Parents, it's essential that you not only uh, teach your children to pray, but that you teach them this prayer. And it is essential that you teach them the way of the prayer more so than the words of the prayer. The words are important, the way is better. For me and my kids, it's, God, we thank you that you're our Heavenly Father or Heavenly Dad. Please make our, or we know you're holy or we know you're good. Please make our house like your kingdom. Give us everything we need and protect us. And as they get older, we expand that a little bit. They're old, my kids are now old enough that they need to understand that there is protection from things we see, trespasses, or excuse me, temptation, and there's protection from things that we can't see, the evil one. If you want to study this more, I recommend to you the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 186 through 196. And some of you are like, you just fell asleep. Because I said that. That's fine. Sleep. You need to rest, obviously. You're tired, like me. But others of you, you really want to drill into this. And your desire to understand is good and God-given, and I do not know of a resource as scripturally saturated in the way that it answers the questions of humans better, more thoroughly, than the Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger Catechism, and Shorter Catechism. Westminster Larger Catechism deals exclusively with the Lord's Prayer in ten questions. So everything that you're frustrated about with respect to the Lord's Prayer from my teaching could be addressed at least partially in the Larger Catechism questions 186 through 196. This way of praying is better than praying these words. And I am choosing the word better very, 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 very specifically. When you don't have any words, use these words. The worst times in my life, I didn't have much to give back to God in terms of new words. So I used others' words. First Jesus's and then a book that I'm very fond of called Canyon Road and the Psalms. But when you do have some energy, take the, each clause of the Lord's Prayer and re-say it in your words, with your circumstances, asking the Lord for all of the provision that's available because of the work of Jesus that we are taught by him more than once, it's in Luke 11 also, to pray. The humble king needed prayer and he taught it 
to sustain and grow us until we're with him. How gracious is God that he not only gives us prayer, shows it to us. We have so many of Jesus' recorded prayers. and We know about 50 days of the almost 1,000 that Jesus spent doing ministry on earth. And we have so many of his prayers because God is that gracious to teach us in that way. And what happens as we pray the Lord's Prayer, using his words and using our own, is we remember the gospel. Our Father. Our Father is going to set everything to rights. Did you know that? All the sad things are going to come untrue. The world that is now groaning for redemption will receive it. And we remember that when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That is both about your kingdom and about his return. And it is the most imperatively toned part of the Lord's Prayer. How gracious of God amidst our curse fatigue. Aren't you tired? Generally, and of death and disease and pain and unreconciled relationships? I am. And in praying the Lord's Prayer, both literally and using it as a model, my soul is reminded that all will be set to rights. And this is the, the most challenging part of the, for me, of the sermon. Because Jesus, I, I think the most frightening words Jesus ever taught are after the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And if that strikes you as challenging... In terms of the way that he taught it, it is deliberately so. Because if you know your forgiveness and how profound and powerful and incredible that is, then you inevitably forgive others. He's also talking about a way of life, what the Apostle Paul would call a uh, lifestyle of repentance. I'm thinking of, or a um, repentance unto life is how the Westminster Confession would call it. Practically speaking, it means this. Someone hurt you. And when you close your eyes and picture them, what do you see? If you see their good, fantastic. If you can't picture them without energy welling up in you towards their harm then you need to release them. You need to keep your eyes closed until you can release your desire that they experience the pain that they caused you. And that's painful. But it's significantly less painful than continuing to allow them to continue to hurt you by not absorbing what they did. If you don't long for their good, whoever it is, whatever they did to you, I'm so proud of you 
for your spiritual honesty. And you need to go into your room and close the door and release them from the pain that they caused you. You need to release yourself from needing to harm them. And then you may need to do it again in five minutes or five days or five months or five years. You may need a good curse, a good imprecatory psalm before you can release them. That's okay. That's why it's one of the main reasons we have the curse psalms, because we need them. They actually get us emotionally and spiritually to a place where we can actually forgive the way that Jesus explained we would as a response to his love. All of this is good and possible and beneficial because our Savior and King and Lord and God is gentle and lowly. If you remember nothing else from the sermon, know this. The only time that Jesus spoke about his own heart, he said he is gentle and always open-armed towards us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, for the many, many saints listening to this who have enjoyed utilizing your prayer in their own words for decades, would you encourage them? And for the rest of us who know but neglect to utilize the provision of the Lord's Prayer, would you encourage us this week to go into our rooms and close the door and pray. We praise and thank you for providing so bountifully for us your gospel and then this kingdom practice of prayer. Amen.